Welcome to The Source by Hayes Talent Solutions, bringing you insights into the world of work. In this series, we'll be talking to industry experts about market trends, topics, and strategies, and how they're affecting organizations like yours. I'm your host, Alyssa Levitt. Welcome to this episode of The Source by Hayes Talent Solutions. My name is Paul Vincent. The boundaries of management consulting are becoming ever more fluid. The provision of advice now seems to permeate nearly every business proposition. Consultancy clients have become far more knowledgeable and also specific about their expectations. Procurement professionals, well, they're putting down on pressure on fees wherever and whenever they can. And of course, through a resourcing lens, the dividing line between a contractor and a consultant is now so thin, it's almost transparent. Well, in that context, what therefore does the 2020 version of a management consultancy career look like? I'd like to introduce three people who are perfectly placed to help me answer this question. Firstly, I'd like to introduce Joe Marnie. Joe is the Professor of Management Consulting at Cardiff University and CEO of Consulting Mastered, a consultancy for consultants. And he'll be reflecting on the way that students now perceive consulting as a long-term vocation. Hi, Joe. Hi, Paul. Secondly, I'd like to introduce William Johnson. William is the Managing Director of the OpenSide Group, a company that designs and delivers development programs for leading consulting and professional services firms worldwide. He'll be reflecting on the way that these firms, particularly the more established firms, have had to change their thinking and their operating methods in recent years. Hi, William. Hi, Paul. And finally, Alan McFarlane. Alan leads James Harvard, which is the project services business within Hayes. He'll be reflecting on the increasing fragmentation of the consultancy delivery model. Alan, welcome. Hello, Paul. Pleasure to be here. So I'm delighted you're here with me today, and I'm sure that our listeners will find your insights extremely valuable across the next 30 to 40 minutes. So let me start with a really open question for all of you. Do you think that consultancy actually is a career? Joe, if I can ask you to go first. Um, okay, so I, I, I guess what we understand as a career has changed over the last 30 years. You know, the job for life thing, as we all know, has disappeared. So I guess anything I say about consultancy needs to be taken within that context. Um, uh, after a chat with um, William uh, the other day, uh, I did a, a quick survey on, on Reddit to uh, r forward slash consulting. Um, and asked uh, current management consultants uh, whether they wh why they joined consulting in the first place. I had 250 replies in the space of about 24 hours. 40% um, wow. of them said they simply wanted to get some experience and the brand on their CV and get out of there as quickly as possible, um, which was the, the most common answer. 34% said, I have no idea at all. I just wanted to see how it goes. Um, <laughs> Only only about 11% 11, 11 um, gave the answer they wanted to work their way up to partner and 11% um, said that they joined to work their way up, but now they want to get out as quickly as possible. So I, 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 I guess I, I guess in, the, in specific answer to your question, very few people see it as a long term career. Um, however, they do see it as a stepping stone to, to greater things. Um, I'm happy to add, I'm sure the others have thoughts on this, so I'm happy to, to jump in later. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you. William? Well, I think uh, when we started 
training consulting firm 30 years ago, uh, people were did consider it as a career. I think that's changed in accordance with uh, what Joe said. The argument against career management is probably the same argument against career politicians. That 30 years ago, people couldn't get into consulting until they had some basic experience of life, business. Um, you couldn't do an MBA um, without probably four or five years experience. Now people are coming into consulting with zero experience, doing an MBA straight after um, an undergrad. And so there being, uh, there's a different profile and uh, whether you can have, whether you should have career management consultants, the same argument as whether you should have career politicians. Well, William, I think if I can come in there, I think that it's, it's quite interesting that people's view as to what is a career is changing so much as, as Joe has said and I think I think actually people are increasingly taking an independent route of becoming a what would traditionally have been called a contractor at some point in their career. I think pe what people are viewing as a career is changing, they're moving between organisations and potentially between ways of working at that level as well, um, which is enabling them to have a a longer term career which is potentially out with the big four or out with the traditional management consultancy organizations and that that allows much more flexible models of operating i think that's true and when um, when joe and i were having this initial discussion one thing that occurred to me was that the definition of the word consulting has changed really from a role as a consultant more to um, a description of the way your expertise is delivered so uh, in the current environment we see so many different versions of what you would call consulting media companies it uh, personnel um, in, and it really defines the way the expertise is delivered rather than a role in its in itself which is um, consistent with your view about uh, gig economy and contractors I, I should I should add in from on, on that note I should add in from a student perspective that's what the perception is um, however many of my students end up applying for jobs that call themselves consultancy jobs but actually they find themselves locked in a basement uh, uh, <laughs> a basement in stains um, doing coding um, ex having expected something very very different I, I, I guess I guess the other thing when when I when I mentioned the, the sheer number of people that um, you know want to get the experience and, and leave get the, get the brand on their CV is that we shouldn't underestimate how massively the consulting career um, or the number of careers has, has expanded and and the one of the consequences of that is that it used to be the case that if you spent four years at McKinsey you could walk into any job on the planet but now that McKinsey is so gigantic um, and the same is true of Bain, Boston, Oliver Wyman etc um, that that's no longer the case, and and certainly I I am I, I know several ex MBB um, people with a few years experience who have actually struggled um, to, to find the, the types of jobs that they would have walked into a few years ago. So, so Joe William, you're both in the consultancy education you know, business, if you like. I mean, um, over the years, has has your approach to educating consultants what you've been training them on and, and how they've responded to that training how's that changed over the years William 
interestingly, it's, um, it seems to have come pretty much full circle in the last 30 years. When we started, we came out of Booz Allen as it was then, and we formed really to try and turn as, as an instruction to turn IBM into a consulting group. And uh, we were then teaching the standard, what I'd call basic strategic thinking skills, um, structuring a problem, gathering data, forming diagnostic conclusions, generating recommendations. And we were teaching those thinking skills um, across IBM. Then, as, as uh, Joe said, um, as firms got bigger, the segmentation of what people were doing within those firms became different. And, uh, and, and those sort of strategic thinking skills moved higher up the hierarchy, if you like. So we'd start teaching them because uh, they didn't, the firms, because of the turnover, didn't want to invest at a junior level. What's happened um, in the last two or three years is that with the, because access to data is, um, is everywhere, the marginal cost of gathering data is virtually zero. Um, EI, emotional intelligence, and AI taking over some of the sort of hard work have become um, more important than IQ. And, and so we're going back to teaching the sort of cognitive and behavioral skills that we were teaching 30 years ago and, uh, and added, added to that the emotional intelligence, um, developing emotional intelligence skills as well. What about you, Joe? I guess the big thing that has changed has been the requirement for digital skills. I mean, my, my, my students are very much starting at the bottom. Um, and and I, 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 guess, I guess the one, the one difference between, between uh, a consultant with no skills and a politician with no life skills is that actually sometimes you, you don't want to pay a, uh, a, a consultant to have life skills. You just want them to crunch to crunch, crunch the numbers, do the analysis and produce a nice uh, PowerPoint presentation. Whereas um, with, with politicians, they, they've actually got power. Um, they to produce a PowerPoint presentation. <laughs> yes, yes, let alone, let alone understand data. Um, yeah, and, and so I guess um, I, I spend a lot of time listening to or speaking to consultancies about what they're looking for in recruits. And um, increasingly it's an understand as well as all the other stuff if you have an understanding of of basic coding or data analysis um big data artificial intelligence whatever you want to call it um you're at an advantage compared to other people going into the industry and so i partner up with um with our uh, computing department um to teach them those things that i i have no idea um about so i guess that's that's the big thing. Um, I, I guess the the other trend is that quite rightly, given the amounts that they're paying, students have become a lot more instrumental or mercenary, depending on your view, um, and very much are, aren't particularly interested in stuff that isn't bankable. So I used to do a lot of sort of um, critique, wider thinking, sociological theory, you know, asking what really is consulting and, and getting into the history of it. Um, really, in, in response to pressure from students, I now focus much more on how, you know, get the skills and this is how you get into the firms. 
Um, and I think you're losing a lot by doing that, um, but the students are much happier. Um, Do you think that there's uh, the generational differences, you know, makes a big difference as well to you know, how they are applying the skills and their expectation of what they need to, to learn? Have you, have you noticed that? William? Uh, I think I, I think uh, I agree with Joe about the basic digital skills. Um, almost when you know, thirty years ago, you an MBA was a, a ticket into consulting. Now it's just a ticket to the game. Everybody's got one. Um, but so the next differentiator is: Have you got basic digital skills? The um, and th and that's fine, but you're not going to reach, or it's it's more difficult to reach the top of a consulting firm or any professional service firm just by being a subject matter expert because eventually you're going to have to evolve to the role of partner or whatever they call it director <clears throat> and there your expertise it's probably not so true in law in that um, you can still have specialist lawyers at the head of an organization but increasingly in other professional services disciplines the role of the partner is to represent the firm and uh, to um, exemplify the brand, embody the culture and ensure the legacy and much less to be the technical expert. They just don't have the capability. So um, over that period, the thing, because everybody's a technical expert when they join, as Joe said, that's just a ticket to the game. What differentiates you as you move up the hierarchy is your ability to represent the firm do business development, build client relationships. Do we think that comes, some of that comes from client side in terms of the look for value for money there, a changing perception of what they want from a, from a consultant in terms of what they're expecting? Well, I think from the client side, a lot of the time they want to, especially at a senior level. So if you imagine at the moment, senior clients probably aren't terribly tech, uh, digitally aware or, or skilled, they want, sort of translation skills really so they want to you know they want the senior people and even the junior people to be able to put it in language that they can understand junior people um, tend not to have that that sort of semantic capacity to be able to put it in the con in the business context they could tell you the bits and bytes and the the uh, technical pieces of the solution if you like but the context so they can tell you the content but the context is more critical. So let me just um, sort of take it on to a slightly different uh, perspective now. I mentioned in the introduction that uh, consultants and clients are becoming you know, a lot more knowledgeable. So Alan, in, in the James Harvard business model, uh, I'm sure that the, your success has been fueled by more knowledgeable clients. I mean, do you, more, do you foresee more organizations going down that kind of uh, interim project solutions route? I do. I, I think there's quite a change in what clients are asking for, or there is there is a shift in where they can get that from as well, Paul. So there's there is a need for expertise from outside the organisation. Um, I think there's a shifting perception as to where that expertise necessarily sits. Um, so it's not perceived as all existing within the top consultancies. They're they're seeing very talented individuals outside of that context. They're seeing people developing 
careers initially inside that that big firm context and then moving outside it so so developing a model which allows which blends a permanent and an interim workforce um, which gives flexibility and and deep expertise is actually becoming very important to clients and I think that's one of the things I encounter a lot is that is that you know are you really providing me with experts as opposed to are you providing me with a with a number of bodies who can perform work for me and it's trying to balance that out and it, there, there's a lot of demand for people with five or more years consultancy experience to provide that depth into where they're going um, and they see they perceive the perception is that that's better value for money outside of the top consulting firms where you may pay 1200 for a, for a graduate upwards and joe just thinking in terms of you know your student population i mean the gig economy now which they'll be engaging with you know on a, on a personal basis uh i mean do they see that as a route to leverage the skills once they've learned them at university or do you still think they see the first step needing to be working for a firm to hone those skills and then they might go out on their own so you you really got to look at the the wider context here so you've got you've got these big trends happening where consultancy job a consultancy graduate job isn't what it was 20 years ago they have to work much harder they get less training there's fewer opportunities for promotion um, and it's it's a real slog and and in and the work has become much more commodified um, so unless you're going in and even now if you're going into McKinsey Bain Boston um, you know it's it, it, it it's not certainly not the job it was and, and the other thing is that it, you know salaries have remained comparatively static um, Whereas, you know, obviously merchant banking and, and finance has gone through the roof and then you've got, you know, Facebook, Google, Apple, etc. who are all, who, all taking on these. these. So there's a lot of competition for them, I guess, is, is the first thing. Um, the second thing is that it depends what type of student you are. If you are in the top 0.1 percent, um, you can earn gargantuan salaries, whether in consulting, banking or working for big tech. Um, within three years, you can be earning 150 to 200,000. There's coders in Facebook who are earning over two million a year. Um, none of them are my students, I should. <laughs> I, oh, I don't teach coding, so and I'm sure if I did, they, they, they'd be, they'd be, you know, uh, uh, they'd be earning a fortune. Um, <laughs> uh, so, uh, but for your bog standard student, the other big thing we need to we need to to understand is how desperate they are for jobs. I mean, this is the generation that you know you've got two thousand and eight. You know, not you know, no jobs. Um, hardly hardly getting out of that recession. Their their personal debts are building up and building up. Um, and and then you get COVID coming along, you know, no jobs. Um, so they're desperate to get anything. And and when you talk about the gig economy, it's a, it's a little bit bit like commodification or or flexibility. It depends who's doing it. If you're doing it to yourself, fine. Uh, if you're not doing it to yourself and someone else is doing it to you, then then it's not so fine because it means low, lower wages. Um, but if you are in that top 0.1% or maybe even 1%, um, of people that have high skills, then yeah, there's certainly alternatives out there. And it is true that the best students don't necessarily want to go to McKinsey, Bain and Boston Consulting Group anymore. 
Yes, um, Joy, it's interesting. I think it's, it's one of the trends I've picked up recently is is the desire among students to move somewhere that they feel ethically comfortable. Um, yeah, sure. Either from yep. an environmental or a, a profit perspective and, and the desire to move in and, and do some good, if you like, um, balanced obviously with the with the need for jobs and the lack of them in certain mm. in certain places. And I think that's that's increasingly coming up, coming up in some of the conversations I have. So just going back to this point around the knowledgeable client, I mean, William, in your experience, do you feel that if you agree that clients are becoming more knowledgeable, you know, that's making it easier or harder to deliver a quality work product? Uh, well, before I answer that, I have a question for Joe that he might want to answer later on, if he could recommend a good coding course. Um, <laughs> I'll send you an email, yes. Um, Not too old, William, for coding. No, never too old for coding. <laughs> um, so the, the answer to your question is it depends on the consultant. So if you're a smarter consultant, it makes it easier. If you're not so smart, you're going to get caught out. And uh, often the clients are ex-consultants and they will ask you the difficult questions that you don't want to be asked. So uh, in a sense, I think it it's a function of, you know, if you if you want, now we know that clients are getting more um, they're better briefed, they're more thoughtful. You know, we run programs for, well, you've seen one, Paul, that we ran mm. for the Consulting Buyers Forum on for procurement people to train them to become better buyers of consulting, to ask the difficult questions that consulting firms really don't want to be asked. And you ask them, you ask the right questions, you're going to get a better product. Uh, I think, William, that, 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 that relates in part to some seg segmentation between the thinking that sits behind what's going to be done and the execution of it. I think that's that's where we're also seeing some some movement in the market. Um, firms firms can focus on execution, which doesn't require the the heavy lifting, the the design, the build, the data shifting up front, um, and that therefore creates almost two segments of of management consulting inside there. I think um, certainly we are focused much more on the executional side than the thinking. You see, the, 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 I think I agree with you. The and what that means there, essentially, is that the execution side is just your hiring bodies. It's bodies for hire, and that's more of a contractor sort of relationship than um, than what I view as a, as a traditional consulting type relationship. Joe, I, I was just thinking. I was just thinking of a company called Excelis, um, who. Um, I actually encourage my better students to look at and what they do is they get outstanding students not necessarily from um, from a business background sometimes from more more commonly from engineering or IT um, and they after they graduated typically at a master's master's level they will train them up to a very high degree and then place them individually with clients and the client, after two years of having this person on a high rate, have the option to bring them in as, in, in as an employee. And so I guess you've got different models that are responding. You know, Alan's part of this. I guess you've got different models that are responding to these shifts. Yes, I, I agree. And I, I think if, if I was to take issue with anything that William says, although very rare as it is, I would say that the, the, the execution piece, whilst traditionally it's lent itself to that contracting market, that there is still some of that. What what the organisations I'm talking to are craving for is some degree of leadership and, and corralling around that to give them certainty of delivery as yeah. opposed to dealing with 
100 individual contractors, it's deal with one person and, and make sure that that actually happens. So giving them that degree of certainty. Um, but I think I think Jim's no. right as well. I think I think those those models are coming through. There's, there's different organisations offering graduates the chance to join and have two, three years worth of, of in-depth training or placement with a client with you to then going permanent, which is a consultancy type operation. You've got internal consultancies growing still, interestingly, um, in different organisations. Um, so I think I think the graduate coming out is is faced with quite a big choice actually in terms of where they might head as opposed to the traditional let's head for four names six names which existed 20 years ago okay so it's very interesting i mean we've, we've cut across a number of different themes here and i think to try and sort of bring it to a natural close we're obviously all living through the impact of covid19 uh, and clearly that's maximizing a very disruptive influence on the economy and on the way organizations are working. A uh, two-part question for all of you really. One is, you know, what what do you feel may be the lasting impact of COVID-19 on the consulting industry? And then secondly, you know, if you were to have a crystal ball and look you know, five, 10 years into the into the future, you know, do you think that the the shift that's taken place across the last 30 years will be matched or or accelerated in the, the next five or 10 years? Or do you think we've reached that sort of plateauing of what the nature of consultancy is likely to be uh, going forward. So, um, Joe, start with you first. Okay, so I mean, the the others will know this better better than I do. I can I can only talk to the the, the macro trends really, um, and and what what you're you're getting. I mean, in in the short term with COVID, you're getting a twenty percent hit. Um, in in Europe, that's a thirty percent hit. Um, in other parts of the world, it's lower. Um, and that also depends on, on the type of consultancy. Some consultancies are growing, obviously. Um, if you're in, 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 in uh, public sector or uh, retail um, or disaster recovery services, then you know it, you're, you're growing. Um, what, you, what you're getting um, on, on a grand scale now is the large, the larger consultancies have seen their profit margins declining over the last 15 years, uh, which is why utilisation rates and leverage ratios are up. Um, but uh, that also means that they are trying to become one-stop shops. So, you know, we tend to see business model innovation in consulting as something separate to the big firms. And there's a lot of that going on. And I think COVID will accelerate that as clients look to different solutions. But also even within the big players, you know, you're getting McKinsey, you know, op opening up stores uh, primarily to, st to study uh, buyer behavior. Um, but, you know, there, there isn't a large consultancy out there that hasn't got, you know, a design wing, a marketing wing, um, digital marketing wing, uh, sort of engineering strategy. So they're trying to become this one stop shop. Um, and that has obviously significant coordination problems. You know, th this is this goes back to old old management theory and the dangers of becoming, you know, massive conglomerates. Um, uh, and, but it also raises very um, interesting questions for clients who, who, you know, may well push back and ask for specialists because what you're seeing is these large companies buying up huge numbers of small niche consultancies. And as I think Alan, Alan or William said when, when we spoke last, um, that's all very well. But within three years, those those unique consultancies are indistinguishable from the larger firms. And very often the founding partners, once they've had their earnout period, run for the hills to start up another consultancy. So 
they're spending a lot of money, they have decreasing margins, and, and although they are growing at a significant rate, that is primarily because to make up for the loss in, in margins, it's to maintain you know, the, the, their partnership investments. So some of the, I guess in short, some, some of the trends will continue, I think, in terms of growth, possibly not in, in Europe, um, but um, certainly the complexity of the consulting industry and the client satisfaction with it, I think may decrease over the next five to 10 years. Yeah, thanks, Joe. Uh, William, I think um, I think we're going to see more of the disruptors like Eden McCullum. I think we're going to see much more of the associate model. Even the big firms will uh, default to associate model as they try and cut their fixed costs. Um, that's consistent with the gig economy. Uh, individuals becoming specialists. I can I've seen already a number of individuals working for two or three different firms. Um, I think brand is still important to clients, but as the disruptors like the research become more comfortable and establish their brands more, I think they're going to eat into the big four and the bigger brands with a, with a different cost model. Thanks. And last but not least, Alan? Yeah, I, th I think. I'm with William and Joe on this. I think I think there's going to be increased pressure on the existing model and on the traditional model. I think there's the move towards associates is, is going to increase. I think the focus, particularly from growth and medium sized organizations, is going to come much more on value for money as opposed to the brand. I can see that changing already. Um, and I think that will that will drive people into different types of career as they as they come into the management consultancy world. No, I certainly agree. Well, listen, this brings us to the end of another episode of The Source. We hope you have found it useful. I'd like to say a great big thank you to my superb guests today, Joe Marnie, William Johnson and Alan McFarlane. Don't forget, you can download our podcasts on a variety of media. Stream us straight to your device to hear from industry experts, disruptors and your peers on how to get work done better and, of course, to thrive. Take care, everyone. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Source. If you liked what you heard, you can follow Hayes Talent Solutions on LinkedIn, where we post daily insights and reminders for upcoming episodes. If you have any questions or suggestions for future podcast episodes, feel free to reach out to us via email at contacttalentsolutions at hayes.com.